This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Pantsuit Politics. We're going to do something a little different today. We have a very special interview with the one and only Rick Steves, beloved figure in my life since 1999. We're going to share our interview with Rick Steves and our conversation with him about his book, Travel as a Political Act, in its entirety today on our show because we think it's so wonderful and we think it's well-timed as we all head into a heavy travel weekend. As you probably know, Rick Steves is a popular public television host, a best-selling guidebook author, and an outspoken activist who encourages Americans to broaden their perspectives through travel. He is the founder and owner of Rick Steves Europe, a travel business with a tour program that brings more than 30,000 people to Europe annually. Rick lives and works in his hometown of Edmonds, Washington, where his office window overlooks his old junior high school. And that care and attention that he takes in writing his bio in such a lovely way comes through in this conversation and his book, which desperately made me want to book a trip to Germany just to go to a particular spa. (laughs) So if you listen to this conversation without immediately starting to do some Google searches for a new trip, you have a stronger will than I do. Without further ado, here is our conversation with the wonderful Rick Steves. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. 
And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Can you tell us about your dad? You mentioned him several times in the book, and I was really interested because he took you on your first trip to Europe, and you talk about this sparking your lifetime passion. But then later in life, you talk about him telling you not to get duped on a political trip and how you took him to Turkey to really expand his views on the Muslim population. And so I was kind of fascinated by this role reversal and how that played out in your relationship. Yeah. My, well, my dad is uh, was just a dear man, and uh, I'm a dad. And uh, you don't appreciate the challenges and the uh, opportunities of parenting sometimes and until uh, uh, you got your own kid. And then I keep thinking back on how great and loving my mom and my dad were. Uh, as far as my teaching and my travels go, my dad was sort of like uh, my, what do you call it, uh, test market or something like that, you know. And he was the, the classic guy that was um, afraid of Islam. And he was the classic guy that uh, when you said Paris, he'd go, you know, Ooh, la la, gay Paris. And, uh, he, you know, he, he loved to travel, but he came out of the 50s and 60s. Uh, you know, I was born in 55 and travel was going camping or, you know, he was an avid boater. Uh, but he was also the best piano tuner in Seattle. And he started importing pianos from Germany, uh, which was quite a bold thing for a, um, a piano tuner to do back back then. And, uh, he took me to Europe and boy, what a way to open up your perspectives. And, uh, you know, we, we learned together and, uh, uh, we went over there and, uh, you know, I mean, I'll never forget, uh, some friends gave us white asparagus and we thought, what are these albino asparaguses, you know, and the Germans are so crazy about them and the little things like that. I mean, I ate my first mushroom, uh, in, in Germany, I had my first yogurt in Yugoslavia uh, I had my first escargot, of course, in France, and I became pretty, um, pretty enthusiastic about what I called stinky cheese. And uh, uh, all of that was in, we were steep on the learning curve together. Uh, and then my travels kind of politicized me. My dad was a little slower to, to broaden his perspective politically, and I enjoyed um, challenging him. So I, I remember... Uh, when my little boy, we would have, we'd be gathering together with grandma and grandpa and for dinner, my, I taught my son to kind of go Allah, Allah, Allah at the end, uh, just to kind of uh, ruffle my dad's feathers and remind him that uh, uh, this world is, is filled with billions of people and we're all children of the same God. Uh, so that's the, the fun thing about traveling is you get out of your comfort zone. And if you're a teacher like me, you want to bring people there with you. Uh, but you got to realize that you can't force people into it. You've got to artfully mm. introduce people to challenging situations where afterwards they realize, yeah, that was a good experience. Thank you for taking me there. You talk in the book about how feather ruffling is kind of your thing <laughs> and how you were maybe more aggressive about it uh, in your younger years than you are now. And I wonder, were you like that before you started really being interested in traveling? Is that inherent in your personality or did that come from the travel? I'm a teacher. 
you know, uh, that's kind of what I've always done. Uh, my two favorite things, I think, are, are music and travel. And I was a piano teacher before, and I remember the the parents would uh, bring their, the mothers would bring their kids to my piano studio, and they'd have tears stained the cheeks. You're gonna learn the piano, you know, and they'd take me in there and and I would uh, I would start them with the, the the pop stuff and the boogies, and we'd get to Bach and Beethoven in due time. But you know, I was artfully broadening their world in music, and uh, I guess that's the same thing I like to do as a travel teacher. And uh, uh, I think you you used the word aggressive. I used to be more aggressive. I'm, I'm fine with that, but I think I just became more artful and better at it uh, because I I had you know for for. 20 years i was uh, i had the bully pulpit i had the microphone in my hand and i had 25 people on my bus and i lived on the bus i was a creature of the bus and i was the teacher i i was the i was the coach i i was designing people's you know um how were they going to come home with the most beautiful souvenir and that's that broader global perspective mm. and i used to do it aggressively i used to put people in bad hotels just so they could gain an appreciation of having a good roof over their head or I even had a group once where we didn't have reservations for hotels. And uh, I realized Americans can't relax after about three o'clock if they don't know where they're going to sleep tonight. <laughs> uh, they, they can ignore homelessness across the street. But if it's their possibility of not having a hotel, life's got to grind to a halt right now until we figure out where the heck am I going to sleep. I found that to be quite interesting. And uh, as a teacher and a kind of a tough love parenting figure in their growing, you know, their path to growing into a broader perspective, I would... Um, realize that it's it's fun to uh, let them realize that for a lot of people, homelessness is is a way of life, not just mm -hmm. the fear of not having a hotel reservation come through one night. Uh, so, but I had to do that carefully. Uh, I'll never forget once in my early days of tour guiding, I, I would put people in bad hotels again, just so they'd, they'd appreciate good hotels. Um, uh, you know, a hot shower is good after you've had a few cold showers. I remember people not wanting to disappoint me, but not being able to handle it. I know that woman crying when she came to you and crying. I was like, oh, my gosh. We were in a circus tent in Munich. And yeah. I always say it was, the, uh, what, 400, uh, 400 roommates uh, crossed between Woodstock and the slumber party. You could hear Australians rutting in the corner in the dark over there. And uh, and uh, I remember we corralled our, our, our mattresses with my little group. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I saw kind of silhouetted this um, um, girl on my tour. And she was kind of sobbing and kind of bouncing up and down as she sat cross-legged and she didn't want to disappoint me. <laughs> and I remember her words. She said, Rick, I'm not taking this so very well. <laughs> and Poor I just, thing. I know. And I kind of realized right there, I'm not doing this right. I've got to give people a refuge. I've got to be realistic about, about people need a comfortable zone so they can venture out with, without the fear uh, and and have the same rich experience. So now, you know, we take 30,000 people on our tours every year and and uh, we pride ourselves in giving people this same experience, but in a more um, artful way. And they come home um, probably more thankful than ever that, that they live in the United States, but at the same time, much more comfortable with the other 96% of humanity, which which I just think is a beautiful thing. That's the most rewarding thing about my work is helping Americans... Um, really develop that broader perspective, uh, that empathy uh, for people who live far away. And also to be a little more humble that, that you know, there's different right ways to do things. It's not exclusively mm -hmm. this way. I love this idea that you learn a lot about your own home by leaving it and looking at it from afar. 
so these are all just beautiful dimensions of travel. And you know what? Every time somebody asks me how many countries have I been to or what's on your bucket list, I, I just, um, I just, it, it, it stokes the fire in my in my teaching soul to uh, help people get out there and not count how many countries they've mm. been to, but but count how many ethnocentric hangups that they've overcome and and how they've broadened their perspective and how how they're more friendly uh, with with things that are different. Um, uh, you know, there's so much. I talk a lot about fear in my writing, and there's mm-hmm. there's so much fear these days. I mean, in the old days, people said bon voyage. They didn't say have a safe trip. I love that. I loved it when you wrote that, yeah. So you said you're a dad, and I know that you say in your books, I rejected this advice not to take kids to Europe. I took mine to Europe this summer. We had a great time. But I'm. But you also raise kids with this curious, empathy-driven so yep. how did you how did you do that when you're raising little kids or middle school kids? Like, how did you get them out there in a way that was that gentle sort of persuasive approach with your own kids? One thing I've learned is kids absorb from a parenting point of view, kids absorb more than you realize. Uh, mm-hmm. Kids joke 20 years later that they were just real pills, you know, and that they just where's my McDonald's and all this kind of stuff. And it's sort of their job description is to be a pain in the butt for travelers <laughs> for parents when they drag them all the way here just last week i was in switzerland meeting a family and they had two teenage boys and those boys were classic pouters you know but but they were having they were having a fine time they just didn't want their parents to know it um and i, I both of my kids i'm so proud of uh and uh we you know we dragged them to europe and uh, uh for years we took them out of school every april for for 10 years and their teachers wow. knew this is they're going to get a you know they they're they knew their these students the their mom and dad were committed to education and and the tour was uh, an investment in the education of those mm. kids and uh, there's no doubt if if that with that good kind of parenting kids get more stimulation and experience and education uh spending a few through three weeks abroad than they do going to the classroom for those three three mm. weeks um you know it's um it's a privileged thing to do to to be able to afford to take your kids on a vacation. And uh, from a very practical point of view, if the kids are really young, I say, you know, people say, where should you take your kids? And I say to grandma and grandpa's on the way to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, if, you, you, if you're realistic about the fact that your, your, uh, your, your personal travel experience is going to take a big hit, you'll accomplish less and you'll spend more by taking your kids. Having said that, it's more fun to change diapers in Paris than at home. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's all sorts of memories. I'm way past diapers, I will say. <laughs> my first trip abroad was to Switzerland with my great-great-aunt. Maybe that's the secret. You can take a, a 13-year-old to Europe and not have all that yeah. complaining as long as it's not the parents. Well, Beth, you're, you're right about that. There's a certain age where it becomes much more practical. When the kids are little, okay. Um, but a lot of parents, I remember, take you know they, they take their kids to these Con- little kitty concerts and uh, the kids are just crying and sleeping and the parents are thinking they're doing a good job and they just spent a lot of time and money for nothing but misery uh and there's there's that dimension of travel with little kids but when the kids get older question what age is best you know that depends on a lot of things but you know my parents took me to europe when i was 14 and it was a it was a, a crossroads in my life and it mm. opened me up to the world and it changed the whole trajectory of where i was going because I was fortunate to go to Europe, regardless of your age. We're all beginners. We're all mm-hmm. wide-eyed children when we explore the world. I, I, I was, and I love that in our, uh, in in my touring, either as a tour guide or a guidebook writer or a TV producer. I remember my earlier tours taught me 
they had two phrases they liked. Uh, age only matters if you're a cheese, and it's <laughs> never too late to have a happy childhood. Oh, and, uh, I like that. And I like both those phrases, and I, I employ those. I pack them with me. It's never too late to have a happy childhood. For me, you know, as a parent, I really think travel teaches kids, which is, again, a theme throughout, I think, your your travel writing and this book, you know, Travel as a Political Act, which is discomfort is important. Discomfort teaches you you can still learn. You can still have a valuable experience. You don't have to be comfortable. Comfortable stunts curiosity. Comfortable yes. starts learning, stops learning to me. And I think that's so, but I think, you know, we've, that sort of comfort with discomfort We've lost so much of that, and I love how you're sort of you're centering that. I even love when you say, "I'm not going to take the edge off my opinions. I'll share them, assuming that good people can disagree." Like yeah. there, there should be discomfort. That's definitely the center of our piece. Like there should be discomfort in conversation. That's how we grow. That's how we rub each other's rough edges off. And for what? So when I take my kids, like discomfort's kind of part of it. I expect them to be yeah. uncomfortable. I want them to learn that you can be uncomfortable and still have a good time. Nowadays, when I go to the dentist, they spend more time making sure I'm not in pain than than <laughs> the the whole rest of my life before that put together. They're <laughs> so afraid of discomfort these days, and uh, I guess I don't want pain in the dentist chair. But I do like culture shock, and um, it just occurred to me recently that you know, cult people go to great lengths to avoid culture shock when, in actuality, culture shock is a constructive thing. It's the growing mm -hmm. pains of a broadening perspective. And what we want to do is have uh, culture shock that gives us again that that most beautiful souvenir, uh, and and that's that's a global global perspective and an empathy for other people. The cool thing is, when you travel, you get out of your comfort zone intentionally. I mean, you want to get out of your comfort zone. You don't need to change. You don't need to like it, but you should, I think, expose yourself to it. So you can pick and choose what you do want to weave into who you are mm. after you go home. Uh, you may realize that, oh, there are countries that actually pay more taxes with us and they don't complain about it because they know collectively they're in this together and they have a different social contract than we do. And it works for them. You don't need to go home and be an advocate for higher taxes, but you realize that there are countries where um, people don't play the cheap political stunt of just promising tax cuts all the time uh, because the, the electorate is more sophisticated and they realize that all tax cuts are uh, are not the same and there are good investments as a community. Uh, and I just love uh, being humbled uh, in my travels by going to a country that may have a... Uh, uh, have a smaller um, per capita income than my country, but the people are living better. And for me, that's just really like, how, how is this happening? Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I thought you measure well-being by material uh, consumption. Like, uh, you know, for me, I grew up with well-being and material hyphenated. You know, it's mm -hmm. material well-being. That's what you mean, right? No, not always. There's an alternative to material well-being. Uh, and that's almost subversive here in the United States for anybody to challenge that. In my early days, I stumbled into a Norwegian comp um, philosopher named Eric Daman, and he started a political organization called The Future in Our Hands. And it was based on being satisfied with how much material wealth you have and moving higher up on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And that was his political mission, his agenda. And they actually had people in parliament in all the Scandinavian countries from the future in your hands uh, party. And it really is, to me, 
uh, indicative of a more sophisticated um, electorate and society that doesn't have barbed wire halfway up Maslow's hierarchy of needs and and people mindlessly consuming at lower levels when they could just step over that that fake boundary and uh, slide higher up on that pyramid and live more fulfilling lives. When you talk about the benefits of culture shock and the richness of observing other countries and other societies' priorities and values, I've been thinking a lot about how to be an ethical traveler and to make sure that if when I'm being so enriched by an experience, I'm participating in it in in first a respectful way and second in a way that gives back to it. And I wonder how you encourage people to do that. You mentioned in the book how important it is to have a sense of the history of a place before you visit it. Are there other things that you you think about when you consider what the exchange is for that benefit of culture shock? There's a lot of ethical issues that you can consider in your travels. I've always been concerned about the gap of between wealthy countries and poor countries. Um, and when I was even a kid, I realized back when it cost you 50 cents every time you took a photograph, you know, I, I remember that for every photograph I clicked, that was half a day's wages for the mm. people whose photograph I was taking. And they were out there trying to feed their kids and I was spending two years' wages to fly there and back and just having a jolly time. Um, is that ethical if you really care about um, hungry people? And, uh, you know, Mother Teresa might say, don't spend that money on that. You know, give it to some organization that'll help feed these people. And that's a reasonable approach if you want to be that ethical in your travels. But I've decided early on that living in a powerful country like ours, where we are relatively free and where we are able to be thought leaders and to set an example and help steer our country, if you believe in participatory democracy and so on, the most beautiful thing about travel that makes all of the expense ethical is if you do it uh, with a sort of a stewardship approach that I'm spending this much money to go there and I'm a wealthy, privileged person and I'm going to have a nice vacation in Costa Rica and I'm going to stop by Guatemala and Mexico City on the way home. And then when I get back north of the border, um, uh, my responsibility, if I want to be ethical, is to incorporate the lessons I learned down there into my outlook and then live my life here, not oblivious to the struggles south of the border. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a democracy, uh, as a citizen of a democracy, especially a powerful and rich democracy like ours, I have an ethical responsibility to step into the voting booth and not vote for what's best for me, but what's best for the community. And what is the community? Is the community me and people who look like me and worship like me and and live like me? Or is the community everybody who lives here where I live in Puget Sound? Or is the community all Americans? Or is the community everybody in this hemisphere? Or is the community the environment and humankind? And the more you travel, the more you have a broader definition of community. And when I step into the voting booth, in the privacy of the voting booth, it, se- it seems kind of almost quirky or, or, or strange, but I honestly vote for what's best for everybody. What's best for the future, what's best for poor people, who, what's best for people who can't vote. Uh, what's best best for uh, um, the environment and so on. That's just an ethic. That's a way of thinking politically. 
And it's nothing, I don't brag about it. It's just a beautiful byproduct of travel. Uh, I'm saddened by the reality that in the privacy, the most in the voting booth, most Americans would vote for themselves. If, if, if they had a, a question where you can get a hundred dollar savings on your taxes, or you can generate a thousand dollars for people south of the border who don't have a school, the normal American approach in the privacy of the voting booth, I believe, would be a hundred dollar tax break for them. That's a normal, less sophisticated approach. But Thomas Jefferson said, travel makes a person wiser if less happy. I, I just love that. You know, uh, my whole life is not designed to go to my grave with a scrapbook of fun Budweiser beer type images of me having a great time with with all my buddies who are just like me. Um, I, I'm I'm curious. I'm outward reaching. I want to make a difference. I I, I want to contribute. Um, that's just an ethic that I've been blessed with because, in part, I've traveled a lot and I realized the world is filled with love. It's filled with good people. It's filled with opportunity and it's filled with challenges. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. 
This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. I'm interested because I think there's two really good questions here, which is how do how do we all think about being an ethical traveler? But I'm also interested in the very specific question I would imagine you ask yourself, because you're not just an average traveler. You are what we call these days, but not when you started in 1975, a travel influencer. You know, you're no longer taking Europe through the back door. You're this name. I mean, you have fans. When I told people we were going to talk to Rick Steves, they lost it. Like, so I wonder how you think about, like, how as this this career that started as this sort of backdoor, I'm not a travel agency, you survived the internet, which in theory really probably should have killed your business because people could get the information lots of places. And here you are as successful, you know, as you've ever been. And how do you think about, well, if I put this in a book, I'm not giving people a backdoor influence. I'm directing thousands and thousands of people to this location. How do you think through that as you're as you're working? That's the ongoing uh, responsibility as a travel writer. If I go someplace, uh, I'm I got to be careful. I I don't find a place that can't handle crowds and send a lot mm. of crowds there. I could that would be a selfish thing to do because it would it would be a it would be a successful article or something like that, but it would end up messing something up. So I have to do my best in that regard. Um, I have to be just honest about who's my market. That's one thing I think people like is candor. We we don't mm. have a lot of candor these days. Uh, I I stopped. I don't I don't do what do you call it frequent flyer miles. I don't enter contests. I just all I, I just don't want to waste time with that. It's a, the emotion that are the complexity or the non productivity of a lot of gimmicks and stunts that we go through. Uh, I I just want to be an example of how if you are curious. If you are well-prepared, if you're well-organized, if you equip yourself with good information and expect yourself to travel smart, you can travel. And you mm -hmm. can travel in a way where you can have the greatest time you can imagine. Um, so that's my that's why I'm here, is to go over there and make mistakes, take careful mm -hmm. notes. When I get ripped off, I celebrate. They don't know who they just ripped off. I'm going to learn <laughs> that scam and pack it into my next book so people can <laughs> read about the problem instead of being victimized by it. I love the thought that people can learn from my mistakes rather than their own. I love the thought that I can get ripped off and 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 write it off as a business expense. I mean, literally, <laughs> because uh, I'm out there making mistakes and taking notes. That's what I do. Uh, and then I can what I've been doing the same thing now for forty years, and I've got a hundred wonderful uh, colleagues that I work with here at Rick Steves Europe in Seattle, and we're all um, on the same sort of team with the same mission. 
I'm, uh, if you went to one of my lectures back when I was a university student and you went to one of my lectures that I'm giving next week, it's essentially the same lecture, you know? Mm. Um, and I've just got, now I've got experience beyond my wildest dreams and I've got technology beyond my wildest dreams to amplify my teaching. So as it, you know, when somebody asks me, what's my occupation? I'm really a teacher. I teach people how to travel. I've got a wonderful classroom. And um, uh, for me, for my business philosophy, it's let my information kind of be a publicity stunt. Mm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't give people a little bit and charge them for the rest. Um, my TV shows I've been producing for 30 years, they're free to public television. Uh, my radio show, I've got 15 years of uh, my radio show. It airs every week on public radio for, I don't know, for an hour in about 500 stations around the country. It's absolutely free. Of course, I make money taking people around Europe on my tours. For me, the best thing I can do is help somebody have a great trip <laughs> because then they'll, I'm, I'm all of a sudden I'm their buddy. I'm, I'm their travel partner. The trust you have with your audience. My favorite game was how many people DM'd me with like the code names they have for you because they don't want everyone hear them talk about Rick Steves, Rick Steves, because they'll be like, oh, oh yeah. tourists. So oh, you have yeah. all number of aliases should you ever need them. <laughs> Uncle Rick, Uncle Steve. No. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, um, I just was, uh, last week I was standing in uh, Gimmelwald, my favorite little <gasps> village in the Swiss Alps. That's where I went on your recommendation. Oh, it was, I, love I it. said on your bench. It was incredible. The bench. You fell to my bench. The, well, and the guy herded geese behind me on a bicycle as we were sitting on that bench. When I tell you, can, you it was a moment. Oh, Sarah, you can, anybody can sit on that bench and have a moment. That's so true. I mean, but not anybody takes the time to do it. That's, it's like poetry. You got to read it, mm. you know? And, um, and, uh, that bench is there and it's a special place. Uh, it's, a. Uh, Oh, that is really cool. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there's, um, uh, I, through COVID, I've kind of um, come up with a slogan that I've just used, added to my business sort of um, ethics. It's just good business is good business. Mm. Um, and uh, in America, there's less and less good business. Everything is slick. Everything to me is kind of deceptive and everything is aggressive. Um, and uh, I'm in this for the long haul. And um, I've got uh, you know, enough business success. I want to continue to, to be successful. I want to be more successful, but I'm going to earn it uh, with the with the uh, sort of mantra that good business, meaning ethical business, is good business. So, um, you know, there are these issues. I mean, Airbnb is it? It's a great value as an entrepreneur and a capitalist. It turns me on. Airbnb, what a cool thing! You know, hotels are charging too much. Airbnb gives you double the comfort for half the price. Da da da. Um, Uber, similar thing when you consider the whole industry and taxis and so on. Um, but what is the ethic of Airbnb? And do, do you want to burden yourself with with being a con, um, uh, thoughtful consumer when it comes to accommodations? Um, you know, Airbnb is ruining neighborhoods all over the world. And my beat is Europe, and I see it. Um, the Ramblas in Barcelona, uh, the Grand Boulevard of Barcelona, it was just a cultural festival. Today, it's it's a touristic gauntlet. Uh, it's fundamentally changed. In my last edition of my Barcelona book, I put Ramblas, R-I-P. It's not what it was. It's still worth strolling down. But what made the Ramblas magical in the old days was it was a neighborhood. People lived there. Grandmothers took their granddaughters out to the bird market and bought some whatever animals they wanted to take home. Uh, the market, the Boqueria, was filled with local people buying local food for local kitchens. And today, there's almost no local people in the neighborhood anymore because 
landlords can make more money renting out to tourists, uh, short-term rentals, and it drives the 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 the, the human foundation of that neighborhood into the suburbs where it's more affordable and less characteristic for tourists. The tourists get the characteristic zone and they're just tripping over each other, buying stuff designed for them. And there's none of that culture that made the place attractive in the first place surviving. Uh, and that's, we're part of it when we go to Airbnb. Is it a, is it a battle I'm going to fight? Well, it's up to me. I, in this case, I don't, I don't make a big deal about it because I've got other other axes to grind, but that's an eth- <laughs> that's that's an ethical issue, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, climate change is an ethical issue. Uh, I I take thirty thousand people on my tours every year. That's a lot of carbon I'm causing, yeah. and that it contributes to climate change. Uh, am I going to be flight shamed out of that, or am I going to find a way to uh, mitigate the carbon I create? Well, I believe it's important to travel uh, from a from a philosophical point of view for peace and justice and this world to survive, we need to connect rather than have walls. We need bridges. That's just Mm -hmm. important. That's fundamental for, for our future, for our children. But do we want to ruin the environment in the meantime? Well, there's an alternative. And I believe mitigation is for real. If you create X amount of bad for smartly invested amount of money, you can create X amount of good and it, and it zeroes it out. So I've studied this uh, enough to know that uh, the consensus is if you smartly invest $30 in climate change or climate uh, carbon mitigation projects, um, you mitigate, you, you, you zero out the amount of carbon a single person flies from the United States to Europe and back, 30 bucks. I wish airlines charged for it and, and then yeah. were, were taxed for it and it was done that way. But that doesn't work in our country. It would work in other countries, but it's not the way we do it in the United States. So I have to be ethical as a businessman and I have a self-imposed carbon tax of $30 per, per traveler I take to Europe on our tours. And then I invest that money. I could invest in carbon offsets here in the United States, but that's too um, first world for me and, and too, uh, it's just not quite creative enough. I like creative philanthropy. And what I've decided to do is invest the money we raise either in advocacy to raise uh, awareness of the climate um, issue in, in our government or in supporting third world farmers, developing world farmers, poor world farmers. Half of the world is, is half of humanity is, is smallholder farmers trying to live on $5 or less a day. And they scramble and struggle to, to feed their kids and have a little extra money to take a little extra produce to take to the market. And in doing so, they contribute mightily to climate change themselves. Mm. And we can help them with what's called climate smart agriculture. So what I've done is um, on a good year, I take 30,000 people to Europe. Uh, we invest $30 per person. And that means 30,000 times $30 is $900,000. Round that up uh, to a million dollars. So we we dedicate, we invest a million dollars a year in a portfolio of 10 organizations that either raise awareness about climate change in the halls of Congress or um, fund creative and effective organizations in the poor world, south of the border, the global south, to help farmers farm in a way that contributes less to climate change. There's a fine definition on my parameters here. I don't support organizations that help farmers in the poor world suffer through the the, the consequences mm. of climate change. That's a legitimate thing. But I want to I want to invest in climate smart agriculture, which to me is more fundamental and more contributing to sustainability and so on. So we've got ten organizations that we give an average of a hundred thousand dollars to each each year. We're doing it this year. We did it even through COVID when we didn't have. Um, uh, any income at all to make that multiplier 
necessary, you know, but the the organizations we had helped in the years before were doing so well, we still gave half a million dollars to them, even though we had no income. But now we're back on track. We've got our income and uh, we're investing a million dollars in these kind of climate smart nonprofit organizations. And all of our travelers, when they join a Rick Steves tour and fly to Europe and back, you know, they're flying their flight is paid for from a carbon point of view. It's nothing to brag about. I bring it up just because I'm trying to set a model mm-hmm. and uh, encourage and inspire other tour operators to realize that if they're not taxing themselves for their for their the carbon they create in making the profit by taking groups to Europe, they're stealing from the future and the environment. Well, let me tell you, when you take a 13-year-old to Europe, he asks repeatedly if you have purchased your carbon offsets. And so I basically finally sent him the receipt and was like, here we go. We purchased all our carbon offsets for our flight. So that's the upside of taking the next generation to Europe is they keep you real accountable on your carbon offsets for the travel, believe. That is one impressive 13-year-old. Congratulations. He is. He is very impressed. He's great. Okay, so you talked about COVID. And so COVID to me, I know you updated this book with some thoughts past post-COVID, but we're not really post-COVID yet. It's still changing no. everything. It feels very much like a 9-11 moment in travel where everything will be different moving forward. I don't think we're going back to the before time. And I'm wondering how you're thinking through that. How are you thinking about the ways that travel has changed? Even to the, your point about culture shock and being uncomfortable, it feels to me like everybody's so burned out and they really just want a relaxing vacation. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. you know, I did see about approximately half of America in Paris this summer. I heard more American accents than Parisians. But so people are getting out there. But I'm wondering how you're thinking through this sort of post-COVID landscape as far as travel. For me, the fundamental joy of travel is meeting people and mm-hmm. connecting with people, enjoying life and enjoying with them. I mean, uh, and my fear was after COVID that, you know, there would you wouldn't have that energy in the streets anymore. And they certainly didn't have it during the depth of the pandemic. But now we're coming out of COVID. I've been to Europe four or five times in the last year. And um, thank God I've never had COVID. And I've got a pretty good personal sort of way of, I think, staying uh, pretty safe. Um, and what I was worried about, you know, my all my guidebooks are based on all of these wonderful little mom and pops, little creative adventures, little labors of love, people's dream to have a little bed and breakfast or a guest house mm-hmm. or a cafe or whatever. And um, I really was worried after two years of COVID that I'd be, when I updated my guidebooks, I'd be raking away the corpses of all the little beautiful businesses that make a Rick Steves guidebook or Rick Steves guidebook. And there'd just be the Subway sandwiches and the Amazons and the Starbucks left, you know. But thankfully... I've traveled enough now. We've had my staff. It's all hands on deck to update all of our guidebooks in this post-COVID time. It's still there. The vitality is still there. I mean, if you want to go to uh, Spain and and, uh, and and join in the Paseo, it's still there. If you want to, if you want to lick your gelato on a square on a piazza in Rome, you can still do it. If you want to go to that pub in Ireland where they say strangers are just friends who've yet to meet and clink glasses, you can still do it. Uh, if you want to get your keys, your cheeks kissed in Paris, you can still do it. You want to see Gase and Gimmelwald. Believe me, they're still there. You got it. Yeah. So that's, to me, really good news. Now, what's going to come out of COVID? There are certain, you know, technological advances that just, I think, make sense. They're realizing that Everybody wants to go to the same places. That's our mm-hmm. that's our Instagram age, I think. Yeah. You know, we always talk about herd immunity. We've already got uh, herd mentality, so we should be able to <laughs> herd immunity. Places that are forever overcrowded. Anne Frank's house, you know, the Uffizi Gallery, 
the the uh, Gaudi architecture in Barcelona. Now you have to have a reservation to see those things. And um, you just have to embrace that. A lot of people are, um, you know, predisposed not to want to make a reservation. But now, th when I updated my guidebooks, what I found myself doing was at the beginning of each chapter saying, okay, if you go to Amsterdam and you want to see Van Gogh and Rembrandt and Anne Frank, you got to make reservations for those three museums well in advance. Everything else, mm -hmm. you can just walk up to the door. But when you go to Amsterdam, reserve one fancy dinner and these three sites and you should be okay. That's kind of the new checklist before you go somewhere. What do you? Yeah. What must you have a reservation for? If you want to go to Salvador Dali's house, it's one of the greatest sites in Europe, I think, out north of uh, Barcelona. You know, they let in 15 people every 20 minutes and it fills up uh, weeks in advance. Just you got to book a ticket. And there's yeah. two kinds of people, those who make reservations and those who don't. And there's also two. <laughs> the ultimate personality test. Well, and there's two kinds of travelers. Those two, I, I like to joke, there's two IQs of travelers these days. <laughs> those who wait in lines and those who don't wait in lines. So if you want to get around the lines, you can. But that's something that's coming out of COVID. But uh, the fundamental beauty of travel is great. I would just say more than ever, Americans just go to the same spot and take the same selfie. And you could take away the top 30 Instagram stops in Europe and a good traveler would hardly notice it. There's so mm. much else. So I was just cruising in, on a canal in Burgundy for a week, barely saw a tourist. I was just hiking in the Alps for a week, really saw very, very few tourists. I was um, staying in hotels that were filled with Swiss people. Um, so if you're complaining about crowds, you're going to the crowded places. I mean, that's yeah. fine. Go to Amsterdam, go to Salzburg, go to Barcelona, go to Venice. They're great. Uh, but don't complain about the crowds because you put yourself in the middle of it. Right. And all over all over Europe, there are alternatives that are also good that have no crowds at all. And that's advice for the burnout, too. Like if you're feeling tired and overwhelmed, then don't go to the places like there's still places to go that don't have to feed that place you're in. It's so much more relaxing to find that bench you and I keep talking about, mm -hmm. you know. It was a really great bench, Rick. I know. <laughs> <laughs> When he came by and the, Nicholas was like, he, that's my husband. He was like, he is hurting those geese on a bike. Like, yeah. it was just a very wild thing. It was very exciting. Yeah. But also peaceful in a weird way. And then a, uh, a little family comes by and you see three kids on a little, um, a, a little tiny, not a, not a bicycle, but a little toy tractor because they're living yeah. in a farm community. And these are kids that, uh, they don't play house. They play barn. You yeah. Know? I told people Switzerland was the sleeper hit, man. It was a yep. sleeper hit yep. of the trip. We went to Italy, Switzerland, and France. And <laughs> ah, it was good. just fantastic. That's great to have a sleeper hit, you know, because you, yep. you don't really know what, it's not definitively the sleeper, but for, for Sarah Holland, it is a sleeper hit. You That's know? right. Some other, for some other people, it might have been might the be. Riviera or it might have been Paris. Well, and it's like you said, I just, you know, when you think about travel, it's easy to start thinking about places. And listen, you will pry my National Park scratch-off poster from my cold dead hands. I love a, I love a check-off, okay? Yep. But you're right. It's about the people. And part of what was so great about Gimmelwald was the owner of the pension, and she was so lovely. and We were friends by it with the time it was over. And I just, it is visiting people. I think you make that point over and over again. Like, it's not just about taking a picture in front of a place. It's yeah. about connecting with the people who live there. Was that uh, Sabrina at the yes. Pension Gimmelwald? We're friends really? now. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I didn't. I was just there, and I was. I had a beer with uh, her husband, David. Uh, uh, but that's a wonderful. They've been there 14 years now. She's inc 
incredible. Great, a great couple. And those are the kind of people, you know, if I if I go to, for instance, if I'm updating my guidebook and checking my restaurants in Paris, it, it occurs to me, my favorite 10 or 15 restaurants all have the same formula. It's mom and dad, mm-hmm. mom and pop, or husband and wife. And they've got a little restaurant, 10, 10 tables, one cooks, one serves. And they they're not leapfrogging or whatever you call it from one business to a bigger business to a bigger business. Yep. They have found their niche yep. and they are put on this planet to, to to serve beautiful food to their neighborhood. And we're also hungry for that. Where everybody's just trying to get big to sell, like just get yeah. as big as you can to sell it to somebody else. Like we're so hungry for something that's like sustainable instead of just, you know, we always say on this podcast, you know, growth, growth after growth, after growth, after growth is just cancer. That's just, you know, like yeah. that's not sustainable. Boy, that's a good phrase because how could continuous growth be sustainable? And in my memory, every time we're in an economic, quote, crisis, it's because we're not growing fast enough. We're still mm-hmm. growing, but we're just not growing fast enough. And we've all been conned into thinking it's got to be pedal to the metal all the time. Uh, don't be duped, as my dad told me. That's right. <laughs> don't come home with some goofy idea. I hope, you know, my time in Europe has has uh, each time I've been made me more and more aware of how relatively young America is. And so I always hope like, well, these lessons that that the mom and pop restaurant is the gold standard, not the chain. Um, yeah. Maybe we're getting there. Maybe we'll, you know, we're just behind a little bit. You know, I, I don't I'm not even sure if I'm on solid ground by having these feelings. But if I go to community and all there is is strip malls with chain outlets, it just doesn't it seems soulless compared to a little mm-hmm. community where um, there's a butcher shop where the, the young man that's there is doing the same thing his grandfather did with the same cutting block, you know? Uh, is that just um, romanticism or is that quality of life? Um, but when you, uh, when, you, when, you see the, when you feel the roots of these communities in Europe and you feel that the joy that people get of finding their niche uh, it's one thing I've, I've, I'm trying to better put my finger on it, but I'm trying to think of what is the difference between Europeans and Americans. And part of it is, I believe in Europe, people find their niche and then they, and then, and then they just do it with gusto mm. rather than calculate, how can I get ahead and don't do anything they believe in? Maybe it's, maybe that's related to defining your own success. Right. If you let somebody else define your success, you are not a success. You're their success. Well, and that timeline can define your success. How long is your timeline, right? If you're talking about a culture that's been around for generations and generations, then your timeline for what success. I mean, like I even think about if you're traveling through France, so many Roman ruins. So I'm like, okay, well, is it the fact that they built these arenas people are still using for like bull races? Is that a sign of success? Or is it it a cautionary tale that they got this big, but they're not around anymore? I guess it just depends, right? I think proximity to violence, too. You know, I was really struck by your description of the European Union as being fundamentally about peace. And Mm -hmm. how much would it impact my life today if the war in Ukraine were happening in Texas? Mm -hmm. Quite a lot. I think it would influence my outlook quite a lot. Yeah. You know, I'm so glad that you guys have um, really, it sounds like, taken to heart the, the, the book I wrote, Travel as a Political Act, because it's the book that it's it's not a guidebook. Uh, in a standard sense, but in a way, it's a, a guidebook to, uh, I think, inspire or, or show people how travel can be a life-changing experience. Mm-hmm. The the catchword these days to sell travel is experience, you know, and I just love the thought that you can have life-changing experiences and you don't get them 
when you go to the predictable places and that and you don't strive to get out of your comfort zone. If you look at the places I've featured in Travel as a Political Act, it's places on the fringe, you know, it's Cuba and Nicaragua and El Salvador and Morocco and Egypt and Iraq and Russia and India and Sri Lanka. It depends on how you define the fringe, because there's not a global hotspot in the news that you don't hit on, from poverty in Africa to violence in Western Asia. I mean, like, the places you talk about in this book are like, you even bring up Tigray, like, all these places that are in the news right now. And I was just in Tigray doing our show on uh, Hunger and Hope, and then a year later, the president or prime minister who's supposed to be everybody's salvation and the key to peace he suddenly got his country in another war. And the mm-hmm. charming corner of Ethiopia that we were um, focusing on, Tigray, is is suddenly in a in a hellish experience. Same thing uh, when you go to the Holy Land and, you know, you go to Israel and then you go to Palestine and you go to Israel, uh, you go to Ireland and you, you go to the North and you go to the Republic. And mm-hmm. anytime there's a wall, uh, I just am really um, passionate about this idea. Anytime there's a wall, you there, there's two narratives you yeah. need to get on you, it's it's never just as simple as they're right and they're wrong you need to get on both sides of that wall and talk to people and you need to strive to get an honest dual narrative approach uh and and this is my goal as a traveler when i get into these more complicated areas and it's hugely rewarding and what you realize is that a lot of those walls are built for the excuse of keeping one side safe from the other side. Uh, but the real consequence, the unintended consequence, is the younger generations are saddled with their parents' baggage. Maybe that's an intended consequence. Maybe. And they cannot talk to each other. You know, mm-hmm. if the kids from on either side of the wall, those two communities could talk to each other, the parents would find that there might be a solution to some of these uh, intractable problems. And I thought your focus on these places, these groups that don't have a nation or that don't have a state, but are a type of nation. That comes up in a lot of different places you visit. And it's almost like, I think your argument is a good foreign policy one, which is just let off some of the steam and trying to contain these places. You make it worse if you let them have space, which is definitely the approach of the European Union. I thought the way you wrote about that was so interesting in Travel as a Political Act that you you watch the change o- across Spain and like in, in these different oh, yeah. places where they said, okay, we're going to give you some space for this, a space to, to be who you want to be. Nations without states, that's a huge thing. And and so many times, we, we you know, we, as kids, we grew up in, we have a globe and, and this country's orange and this country's green and this country's blue, but no borders are that cut and dry and things bleed over and borders were shaped by people who won the last war and countries plant settlers to dilute this or that ethnic group. And and there's so much complexity. And when you go there, you get to talk to to people and it really, it really carbonates the experience. Uh, And it saddens me that so many people spend so much time and money to go to Europe or go wherever they travel. You know, my beat is Europe. So I'm always talking about Europe, but it could be anywhere. Uh, And they forget some of these fundamental ideas about how you can have a meaningful experience. But those opportunities are there. You know, you don't need to go to Afghanistan to have an adventure. I mean, there are plenty of ways you can have an adventure. You can have an adventure in Paris, actually. But, uh, you know, you can choose. There's countries, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, wonderful places uh, where where for half the cost of Germany, uh, you can arguably have double the experience if you're if you're looking for political political uh, uh, eurekas. 
You know, we use the word grace here a lot at Fancy Politics, and it's just the way you talk about travel makes me think of grace. It's just the flow of grace. And to remember oh. that those porters are just, it makes me teary. Like, those are just created. We just made those up. And, like, when, <laughs> there are people everywhere. It's this beautiful sort of macro. It's like you you learn about your differences, but also that all that constant reminder, which is at the foundation of mm-hmm. grace, which is we are all the same. We yes. are all the same. Oh, amen. That is so important. And when we travel, we need to... We need to we need to remember that, and we need to grab those opportunities when they they present themselves because they're there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wrote a book. I just wrote a during COVID. I found my journal that I wrote when I was twenty three years old. I traveled from uh, Istanbul to Kathmandu. It's a sixty thousand word journal, oh uh, and uh, I, this is before I ever wrote a, a travel book. I, I was just this crazy kid that wrote every night, and it's so vivid and. I was, I was, it was like an archaeological, anthropological dig into my own past. Who is this 23 year old Rick Steves? And uh, it was, it was, I saw that it was a coming of age trip and I was out of my comfort zone and I was learning and I was meeting people. I was overcoming my fears. And I was realizing again, just like you said, the, the world is filled with grace. And of course, bad things make it into the news. But um, I, I really think if we just get out and get to know get to know our neighbors, it's a travel is a vital force for peace. And I'm so committed to the idea that if everybody had to travel before they'd vote, mm-hmm. um, we'd have a very strong, much stronger democracy. Um, of course, we can't enforce that, but we can uh, we can advocate for the the importance of travel. Europe believes in that to the degree that even in tough economic times, they have a well funded program called Erasmus that funds students and teachers to work in other countries and study in other countries. When I was filming in Portugal, I wanted to go to a, I went to a, a fraternity house in Coimbra, the university town of Portugal. And I thought I'd find a bunch of Portuguese kids, you know, and uh, I got there and it was filled with kids from all over the European Union. Wow! And at first I was disappointed. And they said, no, this is, <laughs> this is a celebration. This is what Europe is all about. And these uh, students were living with each other in a dorm. And for the rest of their lives, they would have a connection when they went back home. And they'd realize, we got to work together. We've got differences. You know, you've got one kind of culture. We've got another kind of culture. But we can celebrate the differences and we can still work and, and play together. And when we think of the divisions that our country is grappling with, if we had something like Europe's Erasmus program, I just think it'd be it'd be money. It'd be a, a very good investment uh, mm-hmm. because there's nothing like overcoming your fears by getting to know who you're afraid of. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for this conversation. Thank you for guiding me through Europe on very, very many trips. Just thank you so much. Well, Beth and Sarah, anytime I have an opportunity to share um, how Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. 
Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I value travel. It's for me just a beautiful opportunity. So thank you for having me and to all of your audience, happy travels. Thank you so much to Rick Steves and his team for making this interview happen. We were just really honored to have him with us today. We will be back in your ears on Wednesday of next week because of the holiday on Monday. So look for that new episode on Wednesday, not Tuesday. We're going to talk about quite quitting, everybody. Get excited. If our Instagram feed is any indication, lots of you are thinking about this new phrase, viral trend. I don't know exactly. We're going to get into that on Wednesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. 
Sarah Greenup, Julie Haller, Helen Handley, Tiffany Hassler, Emily Holiday, Katie Johnson, Katina Zuganellis Kasling, Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, The Creeps, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Emily Neasley, The Cousins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Catherine Vollmer, Amy Whited, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Ashley Thompson, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.